going to be in the book of Galatians. If you're visiting with us, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you, and uh, you can grab it. The page number is in the bulletin. Um, let, let, me, let me shoot straight with you guys. I've never been one to not do that, and I think that I need to do this. I have had a miserable week. Um, just, and by miserable, I don't mean bad. There's a difference between a bad week and a miserable week. A bad week is a week when everything goes wrong. A miserable week is a week when you're just miserable. All right? Just, you just, nothing, nothing excites you. Nothing engages you. Um, I, I, I just, I have been distracted and frustrated and been hard to identify all these things, what's going on. Um, and, uh, and, and these kind of things happen. And when we pretend that they don't happen, we're lying to ourselves and to others. And so we need to be honest. All right? We need to engage with the scriptures from where we're at, not where we wish we were. And so from where I'm at... The scripture that we're going to look at today, I did not want to deal with. Where I'm at, I didn't want to deal with it. I just didn't. Because the problem with it is, I knew that if I dealt with this scripture, I was not going to be able to stay in my misery. And one of the things we human beings love to do is keep ourselves company in our own misery. And we like to drag others into our own misery so we feel better about being miserable. And trust me, I am really, really good at being miserable. Um, Being a pessimist, um, and that is what I am, a skeptic, which is what I am, um, and just generally a curmudgeon, which is what I am, um, the the whole idea of really looking at this passage of Scripture, it was going to get on my... It was going to get on my nerves. So, um, I'm excited to be very annoyed by what God has to say. <laughs> we, have, we have explored uh, so much in chapter 2. Last week we talked about Barnabas and, and we, we talked about all of, the, all of Paul discussing his history and his journey to the Galatians and ministering with them. And now he's going to set up the theological framework for what he's going to say in the rest of the book. And this may be, this is, it's probably the first time that Paul fully articulates his view of humanity and his view of the law. Now remember that Paul was an, a, a rabbi in training. Um, he was a, a member of the Pharisees. He was a, a, a good, law-abiding, Torah-observant Jew prior to him coming to Christ. And so what we're about to look at is literally Paul abandoning all that he was to become something else in Christ. And so I want you to understand the weight of these words. These are not the theological words of a guy who was raised in a Baptist church by a Baptist pastor like I was. These are the words of a man who had to completely and utterly abandon everything to follow Christ. 
And what he says on the other end of that and the power and conviction that he has about this idea, this, this, this single fundamental seminal idea of who humanity is changes the world. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15. Speaking of himself, Apostle Simon Peter, James, the Jewish Christians, he says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I were to rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, I cannot, nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, once again we come to your word. These written words that we believe reveal to us the living word. Lord, we we come in tattered, broken pieces to behold the whole and perfect Savior. And in ourselves there is nothing that could bring us closer to Him. And so we know that He draws us to Him. May we hear His words. May we hear Paul's heart changed, transformed, broken and renewed. Lord, may we live in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. We who were Jews by birth, He says, I was born a Jew. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I have all the advantages in the world because I was born to a community that had a covenant with God, had the revealed word of God, not like you Gentile sinners who were born into sin, born into ignorance, born into paganism, born into everything that Jews get to be free from. And it did me no good. 
That's what he says. He says, we were born as Jews. We had every advantage. We had every possibility, everything that was good for us. And yet when we were confronted by Christ, we recognized that what we were doing in observing the law, the works that we were doing, the energy that we were devoting to service of the Torah, it didn't get us any closer to God than being a Gentile sinner did. But through faith, he says we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ as we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. He devoted his life. Paul devoted his entire early life to being good enough, to be to living up to the covenant that he believed that if he could be good enough, he would earn a spot on the roster of God's team. And so he had to work hard. He had to devote energy, uh, an unbelievable amount of energy. Now, for those of us who think that school is hard, okay, um, that you're going through school, those of you finishing your school year, you're going, man, it was tough. Some of you are finishing your first year of college going, and I thought high school was tough. And the rest of us are going, ha, 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 you thought commencement meant the end. Ha, 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 ha. All right. Um, we were going through it. We we're pushing through, pushing through. Imagine what it was like to be the Apostle Paul. By the time that the Apostle Paul was in his pre-teens or his early teens, he would have had to memorize in Hebrew, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Memorize it. Now, they sang it, so it's you know not quite as long as Alice's Restaurant, but it's pretty long. Um, but they, but they, they had to sing, they had to sing it, but he had to be able not only to recite it, but to provide all of the interpretation of his rabbinical school. What did the rabbis have to say about this? And he would be scrutinized by the, the, the chief elders of the synagogues. They would, they would be drilling him. Every Sabbath he would go in. And as a chosen one, as, as one that was chosen to be a rabbi, and rabbi means the chief, in order to be a chief of the Jews, he had to, he had to be unbelievably schooled. And countless numbers of his schoolmates, his classmates, his peers, would have fallen by the wayside as not being able to do what Paul could do. And Paul was such an outstanding student that at one point, at some point, we don't know when, he was sent to Jerusalem from his home in Tarsus. And there he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the 70, one of the 70 great teachers of Jerusalem. In fact, he was a Pharisee, which put him in the minority, which means he was not only good, he had to be better than everybody else in order to sit on the 70. And Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel and learned and studied. And he developed a reputation that all of the followers of the law revered Paul. When we read in, in the book of Acts that Stephen was being, when Stephen was stoned, the, the deacon of the early church was being stoned by the Jews, that they, they, they laid their robes, their garments at the feet of, of Paul, whose name was Saul. Um, that is a show of respect to him. That he was, he was a young man, 
All right? But people read this and, well, he didn't participate in the stoning. It was because he should have participated in the stoning, but he was held in such high regard that they didn't want to sully him with the act of stoning the heretic. Saul is a superstar. And then he meets Jesus. And Jesus has this great saying in the book of Acts when, when Saul meets Jesus, the resurrected Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul. He says, why do you persecute me? And then he says to him, why do you kick against the pricks? Now, understand what he means. The, the image of that is a, uh, a, um, a beast of burden hauling a wagon and today we use whips to keep the animals moving, but in those days they used pointed sticks. And they would a stick with a bunch of nails on it, and if the horse started to slow down or the ox started to slap, they'd slap them with it. And only a really, really obstinate, really, really stubborn animal would be willing to endure that pain rather than go the direction they were being told to go. And Jesus says to Paul, why are you fighting me? Why are you kicking against me? And from that moment on, Paul's life takes a different trajectory. It takes years. But Paul comes to realize, like he says here in Galatians, that all of the works of the law couldn't do a thing. In fact, he says... He says this, he says, for through, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. In trying to be good enough for God, in trying to aspire to the heights that he believed were required of him in order to be one of the holy, one of the special, one of the clean, that's what Pharisee means, one of the pure, he died. He says, it was the death of me to try to be good enough for God and realize that no matter what I did, no matter how good I was, no matter how strictly I followed all the rules, no matter how much scripture I memorized, no matter how often I went to the synagogue, no matter how many heretics I threw in jail, no matter how much I persecuted the church, at the end, I was still dead. It was meaningless. It was empty. It was, it was just a shattered corpse of who I should be. I was dead inside. See, what Paul was striving for was what we call negative righteousness. Filling up the deficit to get me to the standards of God. If I could just get a little bit more, if I could just uh, do a little bit more, if I could just strive to obtain a little bit more holiness, a little bit more goodness, a little bit more morality, a few more good works, if I could just pay it forward, if I could just pay my seven pounds, if I could just discover the secret, all the cliches and all the pseudo-religious nonsense that gets pumped out by humanity, and not just religious humanity, but secular humanity and Christian humanity, that this is what you need to do to get to God if you could just do this thing but you know what it doesn't matter how much oxygen you pump into the lungs of a corpse it's still dead it will never breathe it will never be active it will never stand up on its own 
A corpse is dead. Things that are dead stay dead. No matter how hard you try to make them live. And Paul realized everything that he was doing, it was just death. I'm just dead. I'm just dead. I'm just dead. And no matter how hard he tried, there was never enough to fill the deficit to cross the line to life. He says, though we endeavor to be justified. Verse 17, if, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Was Christ the servant of sin? He says, so was Christ under the law? Was Christ bound to these same rules? Are we all bound to the same idea? Because if so, then if, if this is who we are, if we have to ascribe to this, this idea of the works of the law saving us, if we, if we have to do good, if, if Jesus' only advantage over us was that He managed to perfectly observe the law and therefore we kind of look to Him as our model, what's the point? Because we're still dead. This, in theological terms, this is what is called total depravity. Now, if you've circulated around theology circles and you've heard people critique um, a, a, a set of beliefs called Reformed beliefs or Calvinist beliefs, you will almost always hear somebody use this term and define it wrong. The, 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 word to, the term total depravity means I am incapable of saving myself. I am broken, crooked, shattered, and there is nothing in me that can redeem me. There is no amount of oxygen that can be pumped into my lungs by other people or by myself somehow, if a dead person could do that, to make me alive. I am utterly and completely incapable of saving myself. Now for the Apostle Paul, this was good news. It took him a while to figure it out. It took him a while to realize this was good news. Because if there's nothing that I can do, if the works of the law can never ever, if my obedience and my conduct and my morality can never save me, if it's never going to be good enough, then it doesn't depend on me. It's not about me. And anybody that's hung around me for a long time will hear that phrase over and over and over again. Do you know it's not about you? That Christianity is not about you? That faith is not about you? That being a parent, good parent is not about you? That, that making it through a difficult problem or challenge is not about you? It's not about your ability. It's not about your capacity because you're broken. You're crooked. You can't do it. Boy, this pastor is depressing. I want to hear how I can. You can't. Boy, bummer. Because it's not about us. 
church is not about us. Faith is not about us. The Bible's not about us. The law was not about us. Sacrifices weren't about us. Uh, our faith isn't about us. Why we gather isn't about us. You being a parent isn't about you. You being a kid isn't about you. Being an employee, being an employer, being a millionaire, being a poor person, doesn't matter. Free, barbarian, man, woman, Greek, it doesn't matter. Slave, it doesn't matter. It's not about you. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, I was living for my observance of the law. I was living to be good enough. And when I finally realized I was dead, I realized what life is. It's Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All his life devoted to trying to obtain the righteousness of God, trying to erase the negative deficit with his own righteousness, and finally stopping, stepping back, And recognizing that the only thing that mattered was Christ. And in that was born new life. What is the difference between being born a Jew and being a Gentile sinner? What is the difference between knowing the law and not knowing the law? What is the difference between being a good moral person and being a bad moral person in terms of your salvation and life? Nothing. The only difference between death and life, the only difference between complete and utter crookedness, brokenness, shatteredness, and a life lived in the Spirit is Christ. The life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have no right Christians, you have no right to control your own life. You have to surrender that. And it's scary to surrender control to someone else. My daughter keeps telling me how excited she is to finally learn to drive. And all I can think of is the days when my dad was teaching me to drive with one hand on the emergency brake and the other hand on the latch of the door just in case he needed to hit the brakes and bail. I'll never forget the day my dad said to me, please stop putting both hands on the steering wheel. I said, what do you mean? He says, you jerk the car all over the place. Use one hand. 
I did my driving test with one hand. Two hands I do this, one hand I... I'll never forget my dad, finally, the day that my dad took his hand off the emergency brake and trusted me to steer the car. And then I proceeded to almost steer it into somebody who tried to pass me on the right lane in the highway. And the hand went right back on the emergency brake. It is hard to surrender control to someone else. We, we suffer from spiritual rigor mortis on the reins of our lives. Dead men and dead women holding tenaciously to the belief that we are sovereign. That we are in charge. And that if we follow Christ, it's because we choose to follow Christ. If we, follow, if we do the Christian thing, it's because we choose to do the Christian thing. That Christ is not in charge, I'm in charge, and I just let him run the show sometimes. Now listen, as an absolute and total control freak, and that's, I am very much a control freak, the hardest thing in the world to convince yourself of is that you don't need to have your hands on clenched and tight. And as a Christian, realizing that that dead, that, that rigor mortis, that, that death grip that we have on our lives is actually destroying our relationship with the one we say we trust for our eternal salvation and sustenance. That we are actually getting in the way of the life that God wants us to live by trying to force Jesus to give us the life we think we deserve. And when a bunch of Jewish teachers came to the Galatians and said, you have to follow the law, and if you follow the law, then you win the merits of God, and isn't that great, then you can be a believer. And they all said, oh, so it's still in our hands. And, and Paul comes to them with this theological point and goes, no, it's not in your hands. You are dead. You just refuse to admit it. The Jews were dead. The Gentiles were dead. The Galatians were dead. The disciples were dead. Paul was dead. Everybody was dead until Jesus gave them life. And for some reason, that's the most difficult truth for us to accept. It's so much easier for us to say that the grace of God comes about because we control certain parts of our lives and earn merit with Him. Win points. Oh, I wish... that I could be as spiritual as so-and-so. Oh, that person really has a relationship with God. If only I could do what they do, maybe I would have a better relationship with Him. Oh, that person has overcome the sin that I, 
that I struggle with, if I could only copy what they're doing, I would be able to overcome that sin. I remember one day sitting with a heartbroken parent over a child who just wouldn't follow a certain thing that they didn't want them to do. And the parent took out a book with fill-in-the-blank answers in it and put it down on the table and said to me with tears in her eyes, but I did all the steps. I did all the steps. Why isn't she being who she should be? I, 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 I met the criteria. I did the thing. Shouldn't Jesus give me the thing because I did the thing? If you're thinking that you can persuade Jesus to do something by checking boxes in a manual, you're still holding the reins. John Hodge and I joke around about growing up in Baptist churches. And in the typical Baptist church, he's a little bit older than me, but he has the same experience. The pastor would finish the sermon and challenge everybody to repent, and then they would start playing Just As I Am, a song that only has four verses, but manages to go around about 63 times on an average sermon, um, until the requisite number of people came forward to to the altar and started praying, and he felt that he had done his job. The people had finally broken. And growing up as a kid, i got to be honest with you, there were a couple times I went up there just to stop that song. (laughs) I had things to do. And Living Color was on at 7.30 and I needed to get out of church. (laughs) We hold so tightly to those reins. We add so much to the gospel. We do it all the time. It accretes like plaque on our teeth. We're bombarded by this idea that Christ isn't enough. There has to be more. We have to add more on. And the problem is we're broken. We're crooked. Everything we add on only detracts from the glorious simplicity of faith in Christ. We have a lot of new folks. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this little bit um, of, my, of my journey, not that this makes me super spiritual. All right? I just want you to know where I'm coming from. I grew up the son of a Baptist pastor. My parents are separated. Um, they have been separated since I was a very young adult, independent on my own. They're not divorced. Neither one of them believes in divorce. My father says murder is an option, but not divorce. They live, they live uh, in separate states. I grew up in a fragmented, broken home. Now, we didn't realize it was a broken home because my dad was a pastor, and so we weren't allowed to admit that it was a broken home. Um, but there were all kinds of controversies, issues, problems with, with how my parents raised us, things that happened. I'm not going to get into that. When I was 13 years old, uh, we were getting ready to go to my grandparents' house to watch TV because we weren't allowed to watch TV on Friday nights at my house, so we went to somebody else's house. I'm not sure how that worked. But um, we would go with my grandparents' house on Friday nights. There were police, uh, police vehicles and an ambulance in our neighbor's house, my best friend's house. My best friend had hung himself. 
Um, and we don't know why or how, but that was what happened. A year later, we moved to Massachusetts to a new church. Uh, I was uh, boiling with confusion, uh, chaos, I, you know, four, 13, 14 years old, going through that kind of thing. And we moved to, moved to Massachusetts. My dad took a church in Massachusetts. We moved there on January 2nd. In April, uh, my, my cousin died in a kayaking accident. We went down um, we went down to the funeral. We came back on a Saturday. We got in the house, crashed and fell asleep. And when we woke up, there were police officers at the door because my father's best friend, another pastor, had been murdered senselessly and pointlessly on the streets of Easton, Pennsylvania. Guy walked up behind him, had him kneel on the ground, didn't know him, didn't know any, just felt like killing somebody and shot him in the back of the head with a three fifty seven Magnum. From that point on, I wanted nothing to do with a God that would allow that kind of nonsense to happen in the world. I struggled and struggled to be a good pastor's kid with no intention whatsoever of being a good Christian. I loved and feared my dad too much to ever admit what was really going on inside of my head. I told my mom plenty, so I'm sure she told him, but I never admitted it to my dad. I perpetrated a lie of, of my, my faith when in reality I was in turmoil all the way to the point that I went to Bible college for the deep spiritual reason that my dad was on staff so it was basically free. I did nothing but foment rebellion the entire first two years that I was there. I got suspended my first year. Um, I actually got, I got expelled for the summer. I don't know how that worked. Um, my second year, I lived off campus. I was living in absolute debauchery. And nobody dared to challenge me for the whole time. I tell people this, and people don't believe me, but I am an atheist who just can't get past Jesus. Because at the end of that year, where I dove into every kind of bit of nonsense and tomfoolery that I could possibly embrace to try to disqualify myself from the grace of God, to do everything I could think of to alienate myself from Christ. One particular evening, I was reading the scriptures, I was reading through the book of Hebrews because I had a test or quiz or something on it, I don't remember what it was. Um, I was infamously bad in my Hebrews class. One time I stood up and announced that the priest Melchizedek was the fourth member of the Godhead and that we were going to worship him with pizza and beer on Tuesday nights. I'm not kidding, I was a terrible person. I was reading the, in, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6. I read the line, and this has nothing to do with proper exegesis of this, but I read the line in Hebrews 6 where it says um, that it asks the question whether it is possible to crucify Christ anew. I have absolutely no idea why, how, what happened. I began to weep uncontrollably and I'm not a crier I'm an almost crier but I'm not a crier I get a little choked up and then I moved on I began to weep uncontrollably there was something about this idea of Christ being crucified for me that I just could not escape I just could not push it out of my mind. I just could not escape it. And so I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to now sit down and I'm going to study the Bible so well that I know everything that's wrong with it. 
So that way I can justify my beliefs. That way I can justify my apostasy. That way I can get out of this whole church thing and I can go do what I really want to do, which was to join the Marines, kill people and break things. That's what I wanted to do. And wouldn't you know it, in the intense journey of studying the Gospels and trying to come up with a reason not to believe in Christ, he just wouldn't leave me alone. Until finally I said, and I said it out loud, it was the summer of 1996, I said it out loud, fine. That was my final act of a profession of faith. The word, fine. You are who you say you are. And if you are who you say you are, then I am what you say I am. And so, I will give my entire life to you. I'm a pastor not because I thought I would get money and chicks. I'm a guitar player because I thought I'd get money and chicks. It never works out for us. When we get the one chick and some money, right? It's it's a good trade, right? <laughs> I'm a pastor because of that moment. I said, all right, Jesus, if you're who you are, then nothing else matters. And sometimes people think that I'm, I'm narrow-minded. Some people think that, that I have, I'm too obsessive about keeping things focused on Christ. Can I just tell you, that is where we must be. Because we are dead without him it is meaningless and empty and worthless and pointless to call yourself a christian and not be willing to surrender the control of everything and follow him and i hate that about him i hate that i can't follow jesus casually I hate that he drives me to obsession to get people to see him instead of me. I want people to see me. I want people to be focused on me. I'm a self-centered, arrogant, egotistical jerk. But at the end of the day, Who I am, in my mind, is dead. And the only life I can live is in Him. And friends, if you are just flirting with the idea of following Jesus, if it is just a casual thing you do when you feel like doing it, you are missing out on the gloriously difficult 
challenging, horrible, glorious, beautiful, extraordinary, supernatural, frustrating, humbling joy of walking with the one who died for us. When Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, he was not exaggerating. We must die to live. And we will save ourselves so much difficulty if every morning we wake up and we resign the grabs and the controls of our lives to Him again. There is no human glory in following Christ. There is no beauty that we should desire Him. Crucifixion is a terrible, terrible thing. But it is only in Him that we have life. And if you are not a Christian this morning, and you expected me to come and tell you how wonderful and amazing your life would be if you gave your life to Christ, I tell you it will be wonderful and amazing. But it won't be easy. You say, why should I do it? You are not giving a good sales pitch. I'm not selling anything. I'm just telling you what the truth is. And I want people to follow Christ because that's true life. I can't answer the why. Because the only reason I do is because I just couldn't get past Him. This week I sat in my office again for about the hundredth time said to God said to Christ I don't wanna I'm tired I'm hot I'm worn out I'm empty sometimes I'm passionless sometimes I feel trapped sometimes I feel like nothing I do ever works Get somebody else to do it. Get somebody else to do it. I whine at God a lot. And if you're not whining to Him, you're not truly following Him. And you know what He said? Absolutely nothing. Because... I already know what I'm supposed to be doing. And if he changes his mind, he'll let me know. So I just continue to do what he told me to do. 
and live the life that he gave me to live. Maybe you're struggling with a difficulty. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe you're like me and you're just feeling really particularly whiny. If you are living the life Christ called you to live, then just live it. Take the next step. Keep moving forward. Keep doing what he called you to do. Maybe you're dealing with rebellious children. Maybe you're dealing with rebellious parents. I don't know. Keep stepping forward. Keep walking. Keep moving. Follow him. Don't allow yourself to retake what you've already surrendered to him. This is not an entertaining sermon. I did not enjoy preaching it. Please, please, please follow Christ. Live the life he called you to. Surrender who you are to who he is. Let's discover what he has for us together. Father, take us from this place. to be the body of Christ. And that's it.